We're continuing on from Matthew, chap in Matthew chapter five, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to backtrack just a little bit. The first couple verses of the reading today are um, the last verses from last week, but I think that they are very important uh, as I believe, as I understand how this uh, is put together, that the verses, the verses following these first verses explain what these verses are saying. So the first couple verses, Matthew 17 through 19, we have read before, or 20 through 20, but then hear the rest. Do not think that I have come, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Therefore, I tell you, truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Fun times, right? <laughs> I remember sitting in my fifth grade Sunday school room at Evangel Baptist Church. I know exactly the seat I was sitting in. I know exactly where the room was when I first heard this passage and the pastor's wife, Mrs. Culp was teaching and she read this to us. And I had always thought I was a good kid, you know, good enough. But this passage put the fear of hell into me literally because that's what it says, right? Because I don't know, it was easy to think of other people as foolish. And I sort of enjoyed it. 
But in this passage, Jesus says no. So I'm going to look at this passage and look at it through uh, that lens uh, that we have from verse 20. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is the reality with which I was confronted at that young age, uh, that my righteousness was not enough. So the question before us is, can your righteousness be greater than the Pharisees? And the answer is, yes, it can. If you obey every law and every rule exactly correctly, your righteousness is enough. Because it doesn't say if your righteousness is at the level of the Pharisees, who were really good law obeyers. It says if it is greater than the Pharisees, it must be greater. So you have to, what's the standard? The standard is perfect obedience. And you can achieve this if you do everything right. The problem is, even in fifth grade, I knew that I could never do everything right because I hadn't done everything right so far. And even in that week following this, hearing this for the first time and knowing how important it was when I really tried to be good enough, it still didn't work. Jesus says, you think you've obeyed well enough? Well, let me tell you something. You have heard that it was said, don't murder. And the people said, yeah, and guess what? I have not murdered. And Jesus says, but if you say raka to anyone, and that word, I'm not sure why they have chosen not to translate it into something that when you first read it, you can understand, but what it really means is empty-headed. In other words, if you say to someone, you're an idiot. <laughs> then you're answerable. Or, you fool. And fool there isn't as much about intelligence. It's about morality. In the Greek understanding, the understanding of this word is you're saying to someone, you fool, you're saying, you have no morals, you have no scruples, you're bad, you're just bad. So when we think of other people, as stupid and bad. We think, you know, I'm, be, I'm the good one, right? So they're the ones that are in danger of judgment. But Jesus says, maybe. But by judging them, you are in danger of judgment. He goes on to say, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And most of them, most of them, hopefully, said, right, and I have not. And he goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in their heart. And probably most of the men there realized that they had not, therefore, lived up to this commandment. And can I just say a little something here? Men are visual. 
And men tend to find visual things cause for lust. Women, now this is a broad generalization, I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush, but women tend to be more relational, more heart-motivated, so women may not lust, may not, lust through visual things, but through fantasy of that perfect man. <laughs> and if you want to feed that fantasy, you have lots of options to feed that fantasy, right? The romance books, the movies, etc. Men have many options to feed their fantasies too, and unfortunately, in our day, with the internet being as available as it is, and images being as available as they are, they have many options too. But most people see what men do as wrong and what women do as just fine. I would challenge us, if whatever you're doing causes you to think that someone else is better for you than your spouse, that's what we're talking about here. That's what you should avoid. And if you're not married, if anything you're doing makes you fantasize that this person is the answer to your needs, I was gonna say look again, but that's not appropriate. <laughs> Think again, because they're not. The, the word for lust in the Bible is a word that I, I really appreciate. It's the word, and I've, I've explained it before, epithumia. It means over-desire or wrongly, wrongly directed desire. It means it, that desire is normal, desire is natural, but to desire the wrong thing or desire the right thing in the wrong way is something that is going to get you off course, something that is not good. Jesus says, you have heard it said, <laughs> so you hear it too, good. Um, <laughs> Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of, of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. In other words, there were ways that a divorce could happen that were considered acceptable. But Jesus says only if there has been unfaithfulness is divorce okay. Now we look at all this and we think, wow, the standard that he creates is too high. And then we see if your right hand causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now as you have been in the church, many of you for many years, have you ever seen anyone who has gouged out their eye or cut off their hand? 
I, th I, th I think you probably haven't because most people see this as hyperbolic. But if, if righteousness is attained through perfect obedience to the law, it would naturally be the case that you should gouge out your eye and you should cut off your hand if they cause you to stumble. Because only if you are perfect can you attain this righteousness. But nobody is doing these things, so there must be another answer. And that is the answer that we find here. Can your righteousness be greater than the Pharisees? Yes, if you obey at all. However, no. Because you can't obey at all. The other thing, the other way of being found faultless according to the law is to pay the penalty. Let's say you run a red light. You have disobeyed the law. And the police officer's right there, follows you with those pretty lights on and, and pulls you over and gives you a ticket and you pay the penalty, you pay the amount that is determined to be the amount you have to pay if you run a red light and then that you've paid it. It has no more claim on you. You paid it with some money and maybe some points on your license but you've still paid it. So, the way to deal with the law is either to obey it perfectly or to pay up. But Paul says in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. So the only way to pay is through death. And that is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has paid the penalty. Not only has Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and mine, but Jesus Christ has lived a, perfect, a life of perfect obedience to God, a life of perfect fellowship with God. So he has fulfilled the law, and he has paid the penalty for sin. He has perfectly covered every requirement that stands over us in regard to the law. So, can your righteousness be greater than that of the Pharisees? Yes. If your righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to you, given to you. And then there's another way to look at this. Can your righteousness be greater than the Pharisees? Can your righteousness not just what's imputed to you, but how you live be greater than that of the Pharisees. And I would hazard to say that the answer to that is also yes. Because what God desires of us is not slavish obedience to the law to say, okay, I'm proving myself, I'm proving myself good enough. But what is, what is the way that Jesus summed up the law? And he got it from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. What is the summary of the law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. And Jesus adds, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, probably an impossibly high standard. But it gets at the root of what all the law is about. 
that we were created for relationship with God. We were, we were created to have relationships with each other that are good, that are encouraging, that build each other up. The Pharisees were trying to obey the law to prove themselves. We can still find ourselves doing that, but we will find failure. And even if we don't acknowledge our failure, we're still failing because we're thinking we're proving ourselves good enough. And the gospel says, you're not. You can't be. Receive. Andy Stanley has a, a sermon that's been fairly widely published um, called, You're Not a Mistaker. Because many of us think, well, I, I didn't do, it wasn't that bad. What I did wasn't that bad. It was just a mistake. I didn't know. I, I, I didn't mean to. And he says, if we continue to call our sins mistakes, we will fail to understand that there is something inherently wrong inside of us, that we are indeed sinners. We deliberately disobey God. And it is our sins that Jesus Christ came to forgive. So acknowledge Acknowledge your state before God. And when you do that, when you know who you are in Jesus Christ, when you know who you are as a citizen of the kingdom of God, as a daughter or son of God, then your response to other people will be different than it was before. You will see them through the eyes of God. You will see them with the love of God. So, in our day, there is what Arthur Brooks recently at the National Prayer Breakfast called a crisis of contempt. What he said was, and we've all seen it to be true, the people on one side of the aisle hate the people on the other side of the aisle, and the people on this side of the aisle hate the people on this side of the aisle, and there is no way to have any real communication except for sharing barbs, throwing arrows at each other, arrows of contempt. And this is a problem. This is a problem for our nation, and this is a problem that the church has the answer for. And the answer is to regard other people as human beings. He goes on to say, don't look at someone who has a different idea than you as someone who is an idiot or someone who is immoral. People who have very high moral standards and who are very intelligent have ideas different than yours. And I thought it was amazing. He said these words, and I looked at this passage, and I see that Jesus says, don't say raka, which means empty head, which means idiot. And don't say fool, which means you're immoral. Brooks is saying the same thing that Jesus said. We can't let ourselves look at another person and say, they're an idiot. They're immoral just because they disagree with me. There's a meme that I've seen on um, friends, 
Facebook pages and friends that have said very politicized things on both sides and, and both groups put this up and it says stop being a Democrat or Republican, be honest, have morals, show empathy, value integrity, be a good human. And I agree with that to a point. But I'm not saying don't be a Democrat, don't be a Republican, don't have your values. Because that makes sense. But don't let those values so define you that you are willing to demonize other people who hold different values. And all of this comes not from you should do this, but from you are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. You are loved by God more than you can imagine. And guess what? Some of those people that you want to demonize are loved by God exactly the same amount. So don't be calling them fools. Don't be calling them immoral. They need God's salvation as much as you do. And some of them may not know it yet. But if you treat them as if they are less human than you, how are you going to win them? How are you going to speak into their lives in a way that they can receive God's love if you're not demonstrating love? We are people who belong to God. We have subjected ourselves to the reign of God, looking forward to when that reign will be full and God will take over through Christ reigning over all the world and no hatred or malice or contempt will remain. Why can't we live that way now? At least try to. That's what God calls us to do. So can our righteousness be greater than that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law? Not if we're trying to do it ourselves. But yes, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And yes, if our hearts are attuned to the heart of God, so that we're not obeying God to prove ourselves, but we're obeying God because we put the reign of God first, knowing that God loves us and God loves them. So when we know this, we will not be able to look at another person lustfully because that person is created in the image of God. That person is not something for our desires to be met. We will not be able to look at another person and say, they're useless, they're awful, because they are created in the image of God and God loves them and wants them to come to himself. We will seek to preserve relationship to the best of our abilities because God desires to bring all together from every land, from every people, from every political persuasion to come under the authority of the reign of God. No earthly government will ever reflect the values perfectly of the reign of God. So it is only in that reign that we should put our ultimate hope. 
And my prayer is that as Christians embrace this truth of who we are in Christ, embrace the value of other people as God does, that we can change this culture of contempt and demonstrate a better way, a way of grace, of mercy, and of love, because that is what we have received.